Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 8 to 12. And as we read this, you will note a recurring theme. And then our sermon passage is 1 Samuel, chapter 8, verses 1 to 22. That's the whole chapter of 1 Samuel 8. So again, our scripture reading is Acts, chapter 4, verses 8 to 12. And our sermon passage is 1 Samuel 8, verses 1 to 22. Brothers and sisters, as God's word is is about to be publicly read to you, I charge you to give your full attention to it. There's nothing more important than you will hear, that you will hear this week, than God's word read and God's word preached. So do your best to do your duty as God speaks to you through his word. Acts chapter 4, verses 8 to 12. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now turning to our sermon passage, 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give to us, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and shall show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before the chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be performers, perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. 
He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Ends the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, infallible, inspired word, which has been preserved down to our day for you and for me. Let us pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, as we have read these words, as we've heard them read to us, We reflect, O Lord, on the ways in which we, too, have rejected you as our king. We're reminded, dear Lord, that this is not an ancient problem. It is not a problem that is relegated to your church of old. We have continued it, O Lord. Every time we rebel against you, every time we disobey you, We are rejecting your authority over us. We are saying we know better. Lord, we pray that your word, as we have heard it read, and your word now as it is about to be preached, would prove to be a corrective for us, that your word would chasten us. We pray, O Lord, that we would not be beaten down by your word, that we would not be further burdened by your word, that your word would remind us that we have been set free in Christ Jesus. Lord, please teach us from your word now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now you remember that in last week's passage, Samuel called all of Israel to true repentance. They had been engaging in idolatry. They had crafted idols to which they were bowing down. They were behaving just like the nations around them. And and Samuel called them to repentance. And then he led them in a service of remembrance in which he reminded them of what Yahweh had done for them. He set up a stone monument and he called it Ebenezer, saying, Till now Yahweh has helped us. With the implication being that God's past actions would very well demonstrate how he will care for them into the future. His past actions for God's people are a true representation to us of how he will continue to act on our behalf. And near the end of last week's chapter, chapter 7, we read, And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. By the beginning of chapter 8, many years have passed. Verse 1 says that Samuel is old. And to provide government for Israel into the future, after he is gone, he has set up a plan of succession. He's made his sons judges of Israel. And that is where things start to go wrong. 
right or wrong, and we'll get into that in a few minutes, the people of Israel wanted a different type of government than the one that had been over them for some time. They did not want Samuel's sons, who they saw, they recognized, were not walking in Samuel's ways. They did not want Samuel's sons to rule over them as judges. They wanted a government like that of the nations around them. They wanted a monarchy. They wanted a king to rule over them. Now, we in Christ's church understand that Christ Jesus is king of his people. And God was no less king of the people of Israel in Samuel's day. The governing system of judges with no human king at the top served as a reminder that Yahweh was their king, that he was the one who ruled over them, that he was the one who defended them when their enemies came after them. And as God reminded Samuel, it was not Samuel that the people were rejecting, but God himself when they asked for a human king to be set up. As we work our way through the sermon, I would ask you to consider this thought. Though God's people have rejected him throughout our history, the Son of God was rejected by his Father so that we might be acceptable to him. Let me say that again. Though God's people have rejected him throughout our history, the Son of God was rejected by his Father so that we might be acceptable to him. This sermon is once again a three-pointer. The first point is a cry for justice. The second point is the cost of a king. And the third point is like the nations. Again, a cry for justice. That's the first point of the sermon. The cost of the king is the second. And like the nations is the third. So let's turn our attention to the first point, a cry for justice. For unknown reasons, Samuel attempted to establish a hereditary succession for judges in Israel. He established his sons as judges over Israel. Perhaps it was because he had been waiting on a word from the Lord to say who his successor was going to be and had never received it. But it seems as though he took matters into his own hands. Now, the notion of a hereditary succession of judges had been introduced before in the book of Judges when the men of Israel asked Gideon and his son and grandson to rule over them. The men of Israel, the people of Israel, wanted there to be a hereditary succession. And this was because Gideon had saved them from the hand of Midian. And in Judges chapter 8, verse 23, Gideon tells them, I will not rule over you, and my sons will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Gideon is reminding them that Yahweh, that God, is their king. Now, it seems that the desire to establish a family dynasty runs deep in humanity's veins. So that even someone like Samuel was caught up in it. And we see this today. The political dynasties, the, 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 the business dynasties, these families that seem to run everything, it, it, it seems that all power is consolidated into the hands of a few families, it, it, it appears in our day. Unfortunately, as with Eli's sons, Samuel's sons proved to be a disappointment. They were, it seems, cut from the same cloth. And verse 2 says that Samuel named his firstborn son Joel and his second son Abijah. And these names were reflections of Samuel's piety. Joel means Yahweh is God. And Abijah means my father is Yahweh. But sadly, Samuel's piety did not extend to his sons. 
They were judges in Beersheba, which is in the extreme south of Israel's territory. And so it wasn't a part of Samuel's regular circuit. It was far enough away from Samuel and his oversight that they could get up to uh, get into some pretty ugly business. So they were able to flourish in their corruption. Verse 3 says, Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and they perverted justice. They became enamored with the pursuit of filthy lucre. They loved money. And being judges made it very easy for them to take bribes from desperate people. Imagine, judges are faced with this kind of temptation today. But in that day, there were three judges, and their father was the main one. And he was miles and miles away. There was no easy communication. It's possible that Samuel didn't understand the full extent of his son's corruption until these elders of the people of Israel came to him. And so their perversion of justice serves as the catalyst for the people announcing that they want a king to rule over them instead of Samuel's progeny serving as judges indefinitely. Verses 4 and 5 say, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. The elders' appeal to Samuel is very brief, just a few words. And it reflects the fact that they don't want what happened to Israel in the time of Eli and his sons to happen to them again now in the time of Samuel and his. They remember the judgment that Israel came under when Eli and his sons engaged in corruption. And so if Israel begins to follow the corruption of Samuel's sons, they are, they are afraid that God's judgment against them will be swift. And so they want Samuel to act swiftly. Now appoint for us a king. Well, this seems to be a case of wanting the, right, the wrong thing for the right reason, at least on the surface. Though they are telling Samuel difficult things for a father to hear about his sons, his displeasure at the demand is because he sees it as a rejection of himself. He's not so much displeased at the news that his sons are corrupt. He's displeased because he sees this as them rejecting him. And God reveals this to Samuel in verse 7. And Yahweh said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Samuel has taken personally the elders' demand that he appoint a king to judge them, but the Lord reminds Samuel that it's not about him. It's not about him. And God then reminds Samuel that his people's rejection of him hasn't been a one-time occurrence. This isn't the first time it's happening. Verse 8 says, According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they also are doing to you. They may want to do the right thing. They may want to have the right thing, justice, which they have not been receiving at the hand of Samuel's sons. And they're concerned that when Samuel dies, it's going to get worse. But in demanding a king to be appointed, they're rejecting the system of government that God had put in place. It is, at its root, rebellion. But worse... God equates Israel's rejection of him as their king with their engaging in idolatry. He reminds Samuel of how in Egypt they forsook him and served other gods. He's making an equation with that now. 
Strangely enough, though God knows that their demand for a king is a rejection of him, God is going to give them what they are demanding. He tells Samuel to obey their voice, but God also tells him to give them a solemn warning about what they are asking for so that the people will know the ways of the king who will reign over them. It's informed consent. The people need to know what they're getting themselves into, and Samuel is going to tell them. And that takes us to our next section, the cost of a king. Samuel lays out this cost in verses 10 to 18. He's fully disclosing to them what they will have to endure because of their desire for a king. Verse 10 says, So Samuel told all the words of Yahweh to the people who were asking for a king from him. Bear in mind that the verses that follow are not a prescription for how the king ought to behave, but they are a description of what he is going to do, which will result ultimately in the oppression of the people of Israel. They will become his slaves, essentially. Now the elders of the people came to Samuel, at least in part because of the corruption of Samuel's sons and the injustices that they were carrying out, and they are now demanding a system of injustice to be enshrined in Israel. Samuel begins in verse 11, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and he will appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He is going to have the power of conscription. He's going to be able to to force into service, to press into service all of their sons. There's nothing that the parents of these boys can do to stop it. Verse 12 says that he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties. He's going to need men to plow the ground and to reap the harvest. He's going to need others to manufacture weapons of war and to put together these chariots that he's not supposed to have that he will have. But he will also take their daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. The king will, in effect, own the elders and, by extension, the people's children. And this mentality of ownership, the mentality of the king, that everything belongs to him, it is going to to infect even the thinking of the good kings, like David, who came to regard the wife of one of his own military commanders as his property. The king is going to take the best fields and vineyards for himself. He will take a portion of the, from the harvest of the people. And from what had been their own, except for a tithe to the Lord, they must now give an additional tenth to the king who will give it to his commanders. So he's going to take the best of their lands, the, the most, the most uh, fruitful places in the kingdom for himself. And then aside from that, he's going to take what remains of uh, the produce, the harvest of the people. He's going to take a tenth of that to give to his commanders, to those who are in his leadership and his military. The king will take their male servants and their female servants, the best of their young men and their donkeys, and he's going to make them his laborers. So Samuel says in verse 17 that the people are going to become the slaves of the king. And thereby the people will have come full circle. They came from the oppressive yoke of slavery in Egypt to the oppressive yoke of slavery in the promised land under the heavy hand of one of their own. And verse 18 says in that, that in that day they will cry out to the Lord because of the king that they have chosen for themselves, but the Lord will not answer them. Just like when they were slaves in Egypt, they will cry out to the Lord. But unlike them in Egypt, this time the Lord is not going to answer them. 
They have sought out this new slavery in the rejection of Yahweh as their king. They have given up the freedom that they had by having Yahweh as their king and made themselves subject to a mere man. This takes us to the third point, like the nations. The people will have nothing of this. They will hear nothing of what Samuel is saying to them. And so they tell him, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, this isn't the first time that the people have told Samuel that they want to be like all the nations. They first told him this back in verse 5 and they repeat it here in verse 20. They've been casting their gaze around. They've been seeing what their neighbors are up to. They've seen what they, how they do things. Now they're a couple of centuries removed from their forefathers' days in Egypt. And they've forgotten the old stories of oppression under the yoke of slavery there. They regard it as the glory days, the golden days. The rough edges have been worn off. And they can only see the benefits of living under a monarch. <coughs> The old saying seems appropriate here that those who forget the past are destined to repeat it. Israel is proving it to be true, or at least they will. That's what Samuel is warning them about. In their idealized version of the scenario, the king, as they put it in verse 20, will judge them. But he's going to also go out and fight their battles for them. He will be their commander-in-chief. He will protect Israel from all of their enemies. Everything that they say the king is going to do, this is what Yahweh has been doing for them. And so the real problem was that God's people were using the surrounding nations as their yardstick, their gauge for the way things ought to be done. And we do that to this day. We allow our neighbors, our, our unbelieving friends, we allow those around us to, to determine to us how we believe, what we ought to believe about a certain particular issue. We allow them to affect our conduct. Now, obviously, God had planned for this. He knew that they were going to demand a king. And so all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 and following, he gave them instructions concerning kings. He set forth laws about kings. Deuteronomy 17, 14 says, When you come to the land of the, that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. And then in the following verses, the Lord goes on to establish laws which govern the king and set limits on what he can do. And so here... In Deuteronomy 17, it's not a description of what the king will do. It's a prescription of what he ought to do, what he ought not to do. But remember that God is doing this as a concession for Israel. He understood that at its root, their desire for a king was a rejection of him. After the elders of the people once again demanded a king, despite Samuel's warnings about the cost to them, verse 21 says that Samuel repeated their words in the ears of the Lord. He still has close fellowship with the Lord. In verse 22, the Lord replied, Obey their voice and make them a king. So Samuel told the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. And chapter 9 is going to deal with this establishment, this identification of an establishment of a king. Samuel doesn't tell the elders that God will give them a king, which indicates that he is still displeased with the people's demand. 
unwittingly perhaps, their insistence on having a king is an insistence on rejecting the Lord. But as the Lord reminded Samuel, this is the consistent behavior of God's people toward them. They reject God, and so he sends to them prophets to declare his word to them. And his people reject them. His people kill some of the prophets that God sends to his people. And finally, God the Father sends his only begotten Son to be with his people, to dwell with them, to tabernacle among them, and, he re- and they reject him. But, bear this in mind, their rejection of God establishes a monarchy in Israel which leads to David being king and ultimately King David's greater son, King Jesus. God has a way of taking what is bad. He has a way of taking our wrong motives and making good from it. Jesus is, as has been repeated from Psalm 118 to Acts chapter 4 to 1 Peter chapter 2 and other places, Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. The Lord Jesus, the Son of God, was despised and rejected by men. Unlike Saul, Jesus wasn't described as tall and handsome. According to Isaiah 53, Jesus, the suffering servant, had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. We sinful human beings so often go by externals. We set up for ourselves kings and queens of great beauty. We are just as prone to reject God as our king today as as were God's people of old. We believe that we know better. We believe that our plan for the governance of our lives is far superior to God's. Mankind continues to reject the Lord, but God's people do as well. Each time you and I commit a sin, it is a rejection of God's authority over us. It is an act of rebellion against our king. It isn't good, it isn't right that we do such things. We are behaving like the nations around us. We want what they have, even if it only serves to harm us. We want it. It's shiny. It's expensive. If my wealthy neighbor or the person on the television who I esteem has this thing, so do I. Bear this in mind when you're tempted to sin. When you're tempted to rebel against God's authority over. When you are tempted to be like the nations around you and to want the things that the nations around you have. Bear this in mind. For your sake, God sent his only son, eternally begotten of the father before all worlds. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, of one substance with the father. He sent Christ Jesus to be rejected by men. But God the father sent his son knowing that he too would reject his son. That was his plan from eternity past. He knew that in sending his son, it would lead to the father's rejection of his son. You see, by having your sins and my sins counted as his very own sins, Jesus became an abomination to his father, hideous in his holy sight. So that on the cross, for our sake, Jesus Christ became sin. And as a result of that, he had to be forsaken. He had to be rejected by his father. And what's more, Jesus did this willingly. 
The triune God was not caught off guard. This wasn't some sort of emergency contingency plan. God the Father knew what was coming, as did God the Son and God the Spirit. The Son understood that He would suffer the hatred and the wrath of His Father for you and me because of our sins. He knew it. He dreaded it. But willingly, He underwent underwent it. Jesus Christ was forsaken. He was rejected by His people He was rejected by his father so that you and I and everyone who believes in him would not be rejected. God has endured being rejected by humanity, even by his own people throughout history. But the father rejected his only son on the cross so that he would keep his promises never to leave or to forsake you or me. And brothers and sisters, that is the good news of the gospel. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that even though your people, we among them, are so prone to reject you. We are grateful that in order to ensure our salvation, you sent your one and only Son, your eternally begotten Son, For the purpose of rejecting him. So that we might live with you forever. We thank you that Christ Jesus willingly went to the cross. Fully understanding. The pain of your wrath that he would have to endure. We thank you, O Lord, that he was willing to be rejected by his very own people and by his own father. And we pray, dear Lord, that you would cause us by your spirit to reflect upon this wondrous truth, this wondrous love. So that we might not reject you when tempted to sin. So that we might not look to the nations around us and to their shiny things. And lust after those things. Lord, help us gratefully to serve you and to glorify your holy name because of the wonderful things that you have done for us and in us and through us. We pray this all in the precious name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. Amen.